Our scripture lesson tonight comes from 1 Samuel chapter 20. 1 Samuel chapter 20, hear now the word of the Lord. Then David fled from Nioth in Ramah and came and said before Jonathan, What have I done? What is my guilt? And what is my sin before your father that he seeks my life? And he said to him, Far from it, you shall not die. Behold, my father does nothing either great or small without disclosing it to me. And why should my father hide this from me? It is not so. But David vowed again, saying, Your father knows well that I have found favor in your eyes, and he thinks, Do not let Jonathan know this, lest he be grieved. But truly, as the Lord lives, and as your soul lives, there is but a step between me and death. Then Jonathan said to David, Whatever you say, I will do for you. David said to Jonathan, Behold, tomorrow is the new moon, and I should not fail to sit at table with the king. But let me go, that I may hide myself in the field till the third day at evening. If your father misses me at all, then say, David earnestly asked leave of me to run to Bethlehem, his city, for there is a yearly sacrifice there for all the clan. If he says good, it will be well with your servant. But if he is angry, then know that harm is determined by him. Therefore deal kindly with your servant, for you have brought your servant into a covenant of the Lord with you. But if there is guilt in me, kill me yourself, for why should you bring me to your father? And Jonathan said, Far be it from you. If I knew that it was determined by my father that harm should come to you, would I not tell you? Then David said to Jonathan, Who will tell me if your father answers you roughly? And Jonathan said to David, Come, let us go out into the field. So they both went out into the field. And Jonathan said to David, The Lord, the God of Israel, be witness. When I have sounded out my father about this time tomorrow or the third day, behold, if he is well disposed toward David, shall I not then send and disclose it to you? But should it please my father to do you harm, the Lord do so to Jonathan and more also, if I do not disclose it to you and send you away, that you may go in safety. May the Lord be with you as he has been with my father. If I am still alive, show me the steadfast love of the Lord that I may not die, and do not cut off your steadfast love from my house forever when the Lord cuts off every one of the enemies of David from the face of the earth. And Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David, saying, May the Lord take vengeance on David's enemies. And Jonathan made David swear again by his love for him, for he loved him as he loved his own soul. Then Jonathan said to him, Tomorrow is the new moon, and you will be missed because your seat will be empty. On the third day, go down quickly to the place where you hid yourself when the matter was in hand, and remain by the stone, beside the stone heap. And I will shoot three arrows to the side of it, as though I shot at a mark. And behold, I will send the young man, saying, Go find the arrows. If I say to the young man, Look, the arrows are on this side of you. Take them. Then you are to come, for as the Lord lives, it is safe for you, and there is no danger. But if I say to the youth, Look, the arrows are beyond you. Then go, for the Lord has sent you away. And as for the matter of which you and I have spoken, behold, the Lord is between you and me forever. So David hid himself in the field, and when the new moon came, the king sat down to eat food. The king sat on his seat, as at other times on the seat by the wall. Jonathan sat opposite, and Abner sat by Saul's side, but David's place was empty. Yet Saul did not say anything that, that day, for he thought, something has happened to him. He is not clean. Surely he is not clean. But on the second day, the day after the new moon, David's place was empty. And Saul said to Jonathan, his son, Why has not the son of Jesse come to the meal either yesterday or today? Jonathan answered Saul, David earnestly asked leave of me to go to Bethlehem. He said, Let me go, for our clan holds a sacrifice in the city, and my brother has commanded me to be there. 
So now, if I have found favor in your eyes, let me get away and see my brothers. For this reason, he has not come to the king's table. Then Saul's anger was kindled against Jonathan, and he said to him, You son of a perverse, rebellious woman, do I not know that you have chosen the son of Jesse to your own shame and to the shame of your mother's nakedness? For as long as the son of Jesse lives on the earth, neither you nor your kingdom shall be established. Therefore send and bring him to me, for he shall surely die. Then Jonathan answered Saul, his father, Why should he be put to death? What has he done? But Saul hurled his spear at him to strike him. So Jonathan knew that his father was determined to put David to death. And Jonathan rose from the table in fierce anger and ate no food the second day of the month, for he was grieved for David because his father had disgraced him. In the morning, Jonathan went out into the field to the appointment with David and and with him a little boy. And he said to his boy, run and find the arrows that I shoot. As the boy ran, he shot an arrow beyond him. And when the boy came to the place of the arrow that Jonathan had shot, Jonathan called after the boy and said, Is not the arrow beyond you? And Jonathan called after the boy, Hurry, be quick, do not stay. So Jonathan's boy gathered up the arrows and came to his master. But the boy knew nothing. Only Jonathan and David knew the matter. And Jonathan gave his weapons to the boy and said to him, Go and carry them to the city. And as soon as the boy had gone, David rose from beside the stone heap and fell on his face to the ground and bowed three times. And they kissed one another and wept with one another, David weeping the most. Then Jonathan said to David, Go in peace, because we have sworn both of us in the name of the Lord, saying, The Lord shall be between me and you, and between my offspring and your offspring forever. And he rose and departed, and Jonathan went into the city. This is the word of the Lord. We saw last time that there's a a common theme running through chapters 18 through 20, and that is the theme of of Saul's family and everyone else following David. Chapter 18 starts with Jonathan loving David, making a covenant with him. Then all Israel and Judah loved David. Michael, Saul's daughter, loves David. Jonathan, chapter 19, delights in David. Michal protects David. Samuel protects David. And here, we're back to Jonathan again. There's actually a chiastic structure to this passage with Jonathan at the beginning, at the middle, and at the end. And the completeness of this particular passage is seen that, that Jonathan and Michal will pretty much vanish from the narrative. We'll not hear about Jonathan again until his death in chapter 31, except just a brief reference in chapter 23. Well, Michal only reappears in 2 Samuel chapter 3. So we've been seeing that David is, everybody loves David. Everybody follows David. And Saul is not exactly blind to who David is. Indeed, by the end of our passage, we see that Saul understands full well that David is the Lord's anointed. And if David lives, he will become king. But Saul is jealous and wants to see his own line follow him as king. Now, we saw at the end of our last passage in chapter 19 that the Holy Spirit had come upon Saul once more. The Spirit of God had been taken from Saul and a a harmful spirit, an evil spirit, sent to him. But we saw at the end of last time in chapter 19 that the Holy Spirit had come upon Saul one more time and Saul had prophesied. This had pointed out that The Holy Spirit 
may come upon a person temporarily for a limited purpose. Our, our confession speaks of this as the common operations of the Spirit, by which the Spirit may use even the wicked in his service. So think, of, think of Balaam, who prophesies and speaks the word of the Lord. But pretty clearly in the book of Numbers, that's not saying that Balaam became a Yahweh worshiper, because what does Balaam do right after prophesying all this great stuff about Israel and how God's going to use them to save the, save the whole earth? Well, he then tells Balak, oh, and by the way, if you want to corrupt them and, and cause trouble for them, send out your daughters and do this, you know, sort of corrupt them and the, get them to turn away from their God. Obviously, Balaam is not. But the Spirit came on him so he could prophesy, and then God took his Spirit from him. And so that's what's happening with Saul. There may be a, a temporary change of attitude and action, but in time, the old man reasserts himself because the old man isn't dead. That's what we saw this morning, that I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. The old man is dead in the believer. Now, what's interesting is that Saul's family, and for that matter, all Israel, sees more clearly than Saul. They see that the Lord is with David, and that is enough for them. And that's the point. Do you see that since King Jesus is the Lord's anointed, he is the Messiah, that means that we need to see that that all this we're hearing in our passage about loving David, protecting David, making a covenant with David, is all about how we need to love Jesus, delight in Jesus, and yes, protect Jesus. Uh, wait, we need to protect Jesus? And by protecting, I mean defending and maintaining his kingdom. It's not, obviously, Jesus is beyond our protection in the sense of he's sitting at the right hand of the Father. There's nothing we can do to protect him. But... What is it that Jonathan is doing for David? I mean, in one sense, Jonathan, in protecting David, he is honoring David, he is putting David's interests above his own and saying, the coming kingdom of David is what I need to be about at whatever cost to myself. And that's what we are to be about. Jonathan doesn't care about his kingdom. Jonathan wants to see the kingdom of God, and so he loves David and wants David to be king. We then are called to be, in a sense, like Jonathan in this passage, denying ourselves, taking up our cross, and following Jesus. But we are also promised the same protection. I will be with you always, even to the end of the age. Nothing can separate you from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. Not even death. I mean, it was possible that Saul's spear might not have missed. What if Saul's spear had caught Jonathan and pinned him to the wall? What if you get pinned to the wall by a spear, literal or metaphorical? So what? You belong to Jesus. The one who loses his life for Jesus' sake will find it. So we saw last time that this is all about loving David, following David, protecting David. And, and last time we asked the question, now why did, Saul, why did God permit Saul to persecute David? What is it that's going on in this passage as to what is God doing with his anointed one? And we saw that the, the Lord's anointed must be brought through suffering to glory. The only way for the son of Adam to become the son of God is the way of the cross. Even as Israel was tested in the wilderness to, to learn to trust in the Lord, 
so also David must be tested in the wilderness. And that's what we'll see in the coming weeks. And that won't happen as long as David is getting comfy as the great warrior, the king's son-in-law. The, you know, sort of, if, he's in, if he's living in the palace and everything's going fine, David will not, be, will not be ready to be king. And we'll see that the parallels with our Lord Jesus, how Jesus was not given a comfy, comfortable existence throughout his earthly ministry. He was called to walk in the way of his father David, And so God sends the evil spirit to Saul in order to drive David into the wilderness. Now, chapter 20 begins with perhaps a certain measure of uncertainty on David's part. Now, David seems pretty clear, Saul's out to kill me. On the other hand, he just saw the spirit of God come upon Saul. So there's a question here, is Saul still out to kill me? Or is Saul actually reconciled? Is he now going to be willing to let me live? Is Saul a changed man? So he comes to Jonathan with a plan. The new moon feast is being celebrated the next day, and David wants to ascertain the king's attitude. As the king's son-in-law and as the, the, the king's general, David should be at the feast. But if Saul was okay with David's absence, that would mean Saul was happy with David. But if he is angry, then know that harm is determined by him. Now, the other thing going on here, it appears that Jonathan does not really understand his father. Jonathan is so used to Saul's confidence and trust. My father tells me everything. He assumes that his father has been honest with him. He does not realize that his father's fear and suspicion has already destroyed their relationship. Jonathan insists... If, if my father was trying to kill you, I'd know it. But David sees more clearly than Jonathan. Your father knows well that I have found favor in your eyes. And truly, as the Lord lives and as your soul lives, there is but a step between me and death. Now in verse 8, David says, Therefore, deal kindly with your servant, For you have brought your servant into a covenant of the Lord with you. Think about that language. Uh, Jonathan makes two covenants with David, one at the beginning of their relationship in chapter 18, verse 3, and one at the end in chapter 20, verse 16. What does that even mean, that Jonathan makes a covenant with David? We're so used to talking about God's covenant with his people, and, and when we talk about God's covenant with us, That is generally set up as a unilateral covenant. God says, I will do it, and he does it. But throughout the scripture, we also hear of other covenants made between tribal leaders, like Abraham and Abimelech in Genesis 21, or between nations like Israel and Gibeon in Joshua 9. Uh, Nowadays, we might call them treaties, but the Hebrew word for it is covenant. So what's Jonathan doing? Jonathan is the crown prince. He is the son of the Lord's anointed. As such, he has the authority to make a covenant or treaty. uh, And his covenant making has the effect of pledging his loyalty to David. So basically, this is is a very unusual covenant in the sense of you wouldn't expect the crown prince to be saying, I will will submit to you. But this is where it's, it's worth noting. This is not David making a covenant with Jonathan. This is Jonathan making a covenant with David. Because in their social relation, Jonathan is the superior. David is the inferior. 
very obviously. Crown prince, commoner. And so Jonathan Jonathan makes a covenant with David. He brings David into a covenant of the Lord with him. This is not merely sort of friendship between buddies. This is about who will serve whom in the kingdom of God. Now, notice how David speaks of this. Because David speaks of this as, I am your servant, Jonathan. He plainly sees himself as the subordinate in the relationship. Because he is. But this is also an example of our Lord's teaching about the greatest being the servant of all. David, sure, in one sense, he is the Lord's anointed. The prophet Samuel has anointed him. Samuel did not anoint Jonathan. David, in one sense, in one sense, David is the heir apparent according to the Lord. But yet, David does not claim his title. He does not claim his his standing, his status. He humbly submits to Jonathan, recognizing that. Jonathan is still the crown prince. Whatever that, whatever that oil on my head meant, and he knows what it meant, the spirit of the Lord came upon him. But whatever that meant, I am still Jonathan's inferior with respect to the kingdom of Israel. David has humbled himself and is serving the very man who has yielded all to him. Now, there's a whole lot of oath-taking going on in this chapter. In verse 3, David vowed again, Probably suggesting we should also read verse 1 as including a vow. But in verse 3 he says, As the Lord lives and as your soul lives. In other words, I swear before God that I am telling the truth. Likewise, Jonathan's far be it from me in verse 9 is oath-taking language. And now in verse 13, Jonathan takes a self-maledictory oath. Now, when we read it in English... I mean, it's, it's a good translation, but when it says, the Lord do so to Jonathan and more also if I do not disclose it to you, that at first might sound, why not, what is he actually asking? The Lord do so. So, so what? Well, the implied meaning of do so and more also is, well, the question is, is Saul trying to kill David? So when it says, may the Lord do so to me and more also, I am swearing before God, asking God to destroy me if I fail to do what I say. May God do to me what my father is trying to do to you and worse if I don't disclose it to you. Now, self-maledictory oaths are not the sort of thing you should be taking every day. Just, I, I, don't, I don't think I have ever taken a self-maledictory oath. Maybe I have. Um, but you might go your whole life without ever swearing such an oath. But if you do, make sure that you swear in the fear of God. The third commandment warns us not to take the name of the Lord your God in vain because God will not hold him guiltless that takes his name in vain. If Jonathan does not now perform his oath, then Jonathan... When he says, do so to me and more also, he's basically saying, may I go to hell if I do not do what I say. May God destroy me. May may he do worse worse things to me than my father's trying to do to you. Self-maledictory oaths are shocking, and they should be. Actually, uh, 
our God himself has take, took a self-maledictory oath when he made a covenant with Abraham. And he told Abraham to cut the animals in half. This is actually where the language of making a covenant, actually literally cutting a covenant comes from. You cut the animals in half, and then you pass between the animals saying, may I be torn in half, in effect, cut in half, if I do not do what I say. That's what God did when he alone passed through the pieces of the animals. When Abraham was expecting to pass through together, because when you cut a covenant with somebody, you go through together. We both will, will promise to do, if we keep, we'll keep up our end of the covenant. And God says to Abraham, no, no, you're not walking through this, because <laughs> you can't keep this one. Only I can. Jonathan is now saying to David, may God do so to me. And more also, if I do not do what I say. Now, it may sound a little strange what Jonathan says next. May the Lord be with you as he has been with my father. That that sounds strange to us because we know the Lord is no longer with Saul. But Jonathan's point is that his father is still king. To say, may the Lord be with you as he has been with my father, is to say, may you be king after my father. So don't take this as sort of like, what is he saying? No, he's actually saying, may you be the next king in my place. Jonathan sees that his self-maledictory oath is an entire renunciation of the crown. And he also sees that this does not depend upon himself. It depends upon the steadfast love of the Lord and the steadfast love of David, the chesed. Notice he says in verse 14, if I am still alive... Show me the steadfast love of the Lord. After all, when there's a dynastic transition, standard operating procedure in the ancient world, kill the whole family of the last king, because those they're going to they're going to cause trouble. That's just that's what they do. They 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 claim the throne, so you got to get rid of them. And Jonathan says, "Show me the chesed. Show me the steadfast love of the Lord. Don't do that to me or my offspring." Do not cut off your chesed from my house forever when the Lord cuts off every one of the enemies of David from the face of the earth. You cannot possibly be any clearer than Jonathan is being. You, David, will be king. And when you are king, please don't kill me or my family. We will serve you. And so for a second time, Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David saying, May the Lord take vengeance on David's enemies. And Jonathan made David swear again by his love for him, for he loved him as he loved his own soul. This is what our baptism is about. Our baptism is our pledge to be the Lord's. And if you wonder, well, then how can we baptize our children? Remember that Jonathan pledges that his children, his house, will also follow David. There are two sides to the covenant in baptism. The first is what God says and does as he claims us as his own. He, he promises the forgiveness of sins and the gift of the Holy Spirit to those who come to him in faith. But the other side is our pledge and vow. Our engagement to be the Lord's. In baptism, we are pledged to him just as Jonathan pledged himself and his family to David. It's why the, the Reformed have so often spoken of, of the importance of owning the covenant. As, as, as a, a child who is baptized, you must own the covenant. You must claim it for your own. You must enter into those covenant responsibilities. And that's 
that's something that's something that that is you can see it in the story of David and Jonathan because if you fast forward to the death of Saul David will honor his, Jonathan's covenant and he spares the son of Jonathan though not all the house of Saul if you if you look at what you know, David will actually eliminate all the house of Saul except Jonathan's line and Mephibosheth the son of Jonathan owns the covenant now uh, there's a point where, where Mephibosheth is, uh, there's a question of his loyalty to David. If Mephibosheth had rebelled against David, well then, then David could have justly killed him. Because if Mephibosheth does not honor his father's covenant, if he does not honor Jonathan's covenant, then Mephibosheth would have forfeited his right of protection under that covenant. So that's where David, David only, only owes chesed to Mephibosheth, so long as Mephibosheth is faithful to his father's covenant. If, and if you think about it, of course, right. If, if, if one who is baptized rebels against Jesus Christ, then that, that is the same basic principle. But Jonathan then comes up with a plan, a signal that will alert David as to whether it's safe to come to the king's house. And Jonathan swears in the name of the Lord that he will be faithful to his covenant. And as for the matter of which you and I have spoken, behold, the Lord is between you and me forever. What is it that binds David and Jonathan together? Why did Jonathan love David as his own soul? Because the Lord is between you and me forever. Now, it might sound as first, at first as though this language pushes them apart and puts something in between them. So the Lord is in between us. But this language is used regularly in covenant makings throughout the scripture. If you go back to the, the covenant that God makes with, with, with humanity in, in the days of Noah, the rainbow is said to be the sign of the covenant between you and me. When God makes his covenant with Abraham... Circumcision is said to be the sign of the covenant between you and me. It's used actually in, in several other covenants and treaties throughout the Old Testament. The point of the thing that is between us is this is the thing that connects us. Think about the problems that Jonathan and David are facing. Jonathan's father wants to kill David. At least that's the allegation. But Jonathan loves David. How can Jonathan love the Lord his God with all his heart and also honor his father? If God says, follow David, and your father says, kill David, which one are you supposed to do? In one sense, that's an easy one. Well, if you follow God, you don't follow your father. Jonathan is saying, the Lord be between us. It is only if the Lord is between us that we are connected in the most intimate manner possible. Nothing else but Yahweh himself separates us. Which means <laughs> we're connected. This, this is friendship indeed. What have you covenanted to do? Well, if you have been baptized, then you have covenanted to follow Jesus. If you are married, then you have covenanted to love your spouse. If you are ordained, then you have covenanted to care for the flock. 
each of us have various covenantal responsibilities in our lives. So Jonathan goes to the feast. And the first day Saul says, ah, maybe he's unclean. If he's unclean, he would have had to wash with water, refrain from social contact till the next day. Okay, okay he must be unclean. And on the second day, Saul's like, okay, why is David not here? And Jonathan tells his father that David asked permission to go to Bethlehem for a sacrifice. Now, what do we make of this? I mean, the commentators are divided on this point. Sort of, is, is the text approving of Jonathan's lie? Well, because verse 24 tells us that David's out hiding in the field. But Jonathan says that David is not present because he asked permission to go to Bethlehem for a feast. Now, it is true, technically, that David had asked Jonathan to say this, but it's also deceptive because David had no intention of actually going to Bethlehem. I do not think that this is a sin. Now, this is, it's, it's related to the example people often used from the 20th century. If the Nazis ask you if you have any Jews in your house, what should you say? Well, it's a, it's a similar case of somebody in a position of authority is trying to kill somebody else. And since Saul is trying to kill David, no honest Israelite should tell Saul where David is. So Jonathan is testing his father. Indeed, I would suggest that Jonathan is actually honoring his father. His father is trying to murder David. No son should help his father murder somebody. Just to be clear. Never, never, never help even your father murder somebody. If, but that's where, sort of, just to be clear, the moral of the story here is that if your father is trying to kill someone, you are not required to tell him where that person is. But short of that, that's why this, is, this is not saying, oh, you can deceive your father or you can deceive somebody, whatever. No, it's, it's, it's in these extreme cases where they are trying to do something that is against what God has told them to do. That that's where they're, they're, you may be in a situation where sort of there are extreme uh, responses needed in order to honor your father properly. And the result here is that Saul loses all sense of decency and honor. His response to Jonathan is unbelievable. You son of a perverse, rebellious woman. Saul is now insulting his own wife. Saul wants to see my kingdom come, my will be done on earth, and who cares about heaven? And Jonathan asks, why? What has he done? Well, Saul's fear and jealousy have reached the nadir of self-destructiveness, and he hurls his spear at his own son. Talk about making sure that your son never becomes king. Try killing him. But this is rather compelling evidence. My father is trying to kill David. And notice Jonathan's response. He's angry. Because he's grieved for David. Because his father had disgraced him. Jonathan cares nothing for his own kingdom. Nothing for his own disgrace. His thought is only for his friend. His thought is only for his Messiah. 
And so Jonathan and David meet in the field one last time. As far as we know, there was only one more time they may even have seen each other again. Jonathan starts with the sign that he had promised to perform. He is a man of his word. He he said he would do it, and so he does. Now, some have wondered, why do they need the sign if they could meet in the field? But there was no guarantee that Jonathan would get that far unwatched. It's possible that if Saul had been sending spies to keep an eye on Jonathan, that Jonathan would have been like, okay, I'll just do the sign and then I'm going home. But turns out nobody else was there. So he gives the the bow and arrow to the the boy, sends him off, and, and he has one last chance to see David. Only then does David rise from beside the stone heap. And David bowed three times to Jonathan. Before he has heard a word from his friend, he knows what this means. He knows that his friend now knows that his father is implacably opposed to David. And David knows that Jonathan has surrendered everything in order to follow him. But now they must part. And they wept at that parting. And we are told that David wept most. And they kissed each other. It is still common for men to kiss one another in much of the world. The holy kiss, the, the kiss of peace, should, should not be lightly set aside. If, if the holy handshake is all that you can pull off, that's a good start. But, but the holy kiss is a good thing. Yes, Judas kissed Jesus, But the fact that it has been used in betrayal should not deter us. If the misuse of a thing forbids its use, (laughs) we would do nothing. For all things have been misused. But Jonathan said to David, Go in peace, because we have sworn both of us in the name of Yahweh, saying, Yahweh shall be between me and you, and between my offspring and your offspring forever. It was perhaps no accident that it was a Benjaminite named Saul who took the gospel of Jesus, the son of David, to the Gentiles. I mean, we don't know whether Saul of Tarsus was a direct descendant of Jonathan. We do know that the house of Kish, Saul's father, lasted at least until the days of Mordecai and Esther. But Jonathan's tribe the tribe of Benjamin, remained faithful to David and Benjamin became united to Judah and it was a Benjaminite who followed the last prince of his tribe and yielded his all to the son of David, proclaiming the son of David had come through suffering to glory and had delivered his people from sin and death. And remembering perhaps how his namesake fell short, Paul declares in Philippians, Forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Saul of Tarsus was a true son of Jonathan. He wanted no king, no kingdom for himself, but only to exalt the kingdom of Jesus. We sometimes sing the the hymn, What a Friend We Have in Jesus. And rightly so, because he loved us while we were his enemies. But what does it mean for us to be his friends? 
Jesus says, this is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends. For all that I have heard from my father I have made known to you. For us to be friends of Jesus, we are now his friends. It means that we do what he commands us. It means we lay down our lives. We, we do, as Jonathan did, in surrendering all to follow Jesus. And his commandment to us is that you love one another as I have loved you. How has Jesus loved us? By laying down his life for us. As John says in 1 John 4, which we heard this morning, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. What does it mean that God is love? In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world so that we might live through him. The incarnation demonstrates the love of God, because in the incarnation, love became flesh. In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. The atoning sacrifice of Christ demonstrates the love of God. Now, these two things, the incarnation and the atonement, would sound like the two most inimitable things that Jesus did. How do you in- imitate the incarnation? How do you imitate the atonement? These are things... I mean, I'm not God, I can't come in the flesh, I can't die for someone else's sins. And yet, John says, Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. What is our love supposed to look like? The incarnation and the atonement. How how are we supposed to do this? This was the genius, the brilliance of Jonathan's statement Yahweh be between us. Yahweh be between you and me. How is it that you can imitate the incarnation and the atonement? Because Yahweh unites you to Jesus. The Lord unites you by his spirit to himself. Keep listening to John. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us of his spirit. The same point Dr. Sunshine made last week. We can only imitate the incarnation and atonement because through the incarnation and atonement we have been made partakers of the divine nature or to use John's language we abide in him and he in us because he has given us of his spirit. How much of this did Jonathan understand a thousand years before Christ? Enough for him to understand that he needed to surrender the throne of Israel to this friend. How many people in human history who were in line for the throne surrendered the throne to their friend? I know, there's a couple of examples, but... Not many. And most of them, I suspect, 
probably were paying attention to Jonathan's example. <laughs> Jonathan understood. The Lord shall be between me and you and between my offspring and your offspring forever. If we are friends to Jesus half as much as Jonathan was a friend to David, we will do well. Lord, help us because we are not very good at this and we forget too often and too quickly what your son has done for us in making friends of us that while we were yet sinners Christ died for us that help us by your spirit to walk in humility and holiness all our days trusting you fearing you believing you loving you that we might live before you and seek first the kingdom of your son our Lord Jesus Christ that we might not pursue our own selfish desires but rather that we might pursue the kingdom of Jesus, that we might walk in humility and holiness day by day, believing that what you have promised you will continue to do, and you will continue to make all things new until the the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. Help us, Lord, in the midst of our afflictions and troubles, help us to draw near to you and trust you. May your gospel continue to increase and grow and flourish in our midst, in our own lives and, and through us to those around us, that we might bear witness to those in our, in our, in our circles, in our neighborhoods, in our, in our workplaces, in our, in our families and communities, that we might bear witness to Jesus, showing forth the love of Christ to those who are perishing that they might see in us and hear from us the glorious good news of Jesus. And may your word that has gone forth this day, both in this place and throughout all the earth, may your word accomplish the purpose for which you have sent it, that those who walk in darkness might see the light of your beloved Son, that, that many would bow the knee before King Jesus and would humble themselves and be baptized in his name, becoming your own children, fellow heirs with Jesus, your Son. And as we go to our rest this night, we pray that you would strengthen and sustain us, that you would help us for the sake of your beloved Son, in whose name we pray. Amen.